The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father God, what we aim to do next, all that we have attempted to do prior to this point, it is all an exercise in futility unless it be by the work of your spirit. Unless your spirit move and work and even motivate us to do that which is pleasing to you, we will fail. So, Father, as we seek to see the face of your son, Christ Jesus, in this word, with the hope that as we see him as he is, that we ourselves will be transformed from glory to glory, Father, we're asking you by the power of your spirit to do your work. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe the words that you have spoken. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in the 11th century... There was a man called Anselm. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he had great concern over the nature and the necessity of the atonement. So he set out and he wrote a book called Cur Deus Homo. Why did God become man? Now, if you're with us on the last Lord's Day, you know that we found the answer to that. That the Son of God came that he might destroy the works of the devil. You'll recall that we went back to the third chapter of the first book of the Bible in Genesis and we found that he had been promised even there in the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, that right there at the fall of man, as sin entered in, as man joined Satan in his rebellion against his God who had not only created and sustained him but given him every good thing, that immediately God was there covering their guilt and their shame making them a promise that he would undo all that they had lost in the fall, creating enmity between the seed of woman and the seed of the serpent. But more than this, that from that woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent, even as his own heel was bruised. So the question that I seek to answer this morning is not so much, why did God become man? But what does it mean for God to become man? And is that even the best way to say it? Is it right to say that God has properly become man? So with that in mind, I ask you to stand to your feet, please. We're going to be in the book of Philippians. I probably should have given you some time to turn there. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We'll be reading the first 11 verses together. This is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient authoritative word of God. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? And would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're still in our Advent series of sermons, as I said when we began our gathering together, anticipating Christmas Day. Remembering the anticipation that came upon those Old Testament saints as they longed for the promised Messiah. One in whom God would come and dwell with them. But before we get there, before we get to any talk about Gabriel, before we talk about Mary and Joseph or the wise men or the angels and the shepherds. It feels as though it's incumbent upon me to make sure that you know what you're looking at. I've I've told you this. My fear is that we will see Jesus as just some type of a Christmas mascot. We will see him lying there in a manger and it will bring us some warm, fuzzy feelings and some romantic ideas of what it means to be loved of God. But we'll completely miss the true message of what it means for God, the son of God, the word to become flesh. Now, if you're here with us on the first sermon of this Advent series, you recall that we talked about the reality that this one who was sent, he has been eternally God. As I said last week, we talked about the purpose for the son of God appearing Why has he come? Now this morning, I want to go back for one more bite at the apple. I want to consider what then actually happened in his coming. Now, because we're dealing with the incarnation, we will very quickly find that we have stretched human language beyond its bounds. We're going to go into some deep waters and our minds are going to be very uncomfortable. Our hearts at times might scream out, no, this can't be. This isn't a thing that makes sense. This isn't the way that I like to think about Christmas. So we'll stretch ourselves to the end of the human language and we'll be left there exactly where I believe God wants us with our mouths agape, standing in awe. Feeling the full weight of what it means for the word to become flesh. So that then, as we hear the announcement of Gabriel, the promise to Mary, that much like John the Baptist within his mother's womb, we will leap. We will turn a flip as we recognize the full weight of what this means. The links that the God of the universe went through in order to bring this salvation unto us. So I told you when, when we first began this, this is, this is new for us, an, an Advent series of sermons. I, I told you that the greatest weight upon my heart, perhaps, the, the anticipation of my heart was that God would use our time together really considering Christ, the person and the work of Christ, that He would perhaps save some who count themselves among our number. I don't just look to the little children who have not yet called on Christ Jesus as Lord, but even grown folks as well. 
And you might, be, you might be tempted to think, well, then hurry up and get to Christ. Hurry up and get to the birth narrative. Hurry up and tell us about his coming. Isn't that the whole point in all this? Tell us about what Jesus has done. But I remind you that apart from the person of Jesus Christ, what he's done means almost nothing. It's who he is. Who he is by nature and who, who he became in the incarnation. That's what brings us the efficacy in his work. And so many people, they're in a rush to get to Christ Jesus as the answer to all the problems of the world. They never slow down to consider, but who is he? Who is this one that we are staring at? And so that's my hope for those that don't yet know Jesus as Lord. And for those that do, for those of you that have been following Christ as Lord for decades, those who have repented and trusted in him for your salvation, recognizing that it's only, as I prayed earlier, it's only when we see him as he is that we're transformed, that we're molded into his image. How many times have I told you that our goal in this place, as we sing songs of praise, as we pray together, as we come to the table in communion, as we sit under the teaching of his word, or as you meet with him alone in your prayer closet, that your goal is to just get your eyes on him. To see him as he really is. To, to wipe away all the foolish tradition and man-centered thoughts that might have crept into your theology. And to see him as he is. That when we do this, we ourselves will be transformed. But what Paul's saying here in this book, this letter to the Philippians is that we as a body are transformed as well. You see, what we're coming up against here is perhaps the greatest statement with regards to the natures of Christ in all of Scripture. These are deep and difficult doctrines that we're going to examine this morning, but you can't, you can't miss the context in all of it. That this wasn't some theological treatise or just some grand statement about the nature of Christ. It wasn't as if Paul was sitting in prison in Rome and he said, let me just blow their minds for a minute. Let me just wreck their worlds for a minute. This was a letter filled with pastoral love, and concern. That's why I didn't just jump in at verse six. I picked it up at verse one. Because you heard this, it was a call to humility. It was a call to consider others as more important than yourself. Paul's hope was that the church would look like Christ. Well, how do you get a people to look like Christ? You show them Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? What I'm trying to say is Christology matters. Christology matters. Who do you say that I am? There's plenty of people who are willing to say, I say that you're Lord. Don't have a clue what that means. So it matters. It matters how we think about this one that's lying in the manger. It matters for your soul, for your eternal destiny and for the health of this church. What does he say is hope in the chapter just before this, that we would stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, that we would in no way be frightened by our opponents. Do you want to know how we stand firm as a united people? Do you want to know how we make sure that the threats of the enemy and the surrounding world don't creep in? We see Christ as he really is. So that's this hope. That's my hope for us, that we would be an unshakable church. 
Not just claiming the name of Christ, not just demanding that the world put Christ back in Christmas, but reckoning with who he is. And so I'm giving you, in case you're wondering, for those of you that think I don't give you enough application in the sermons, I'm giving you the application on the front end, okay? Here is my application, straight from the lips of Paul, from the mouth of God, Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. That's the application, and you can't do it unless you behold Christ and by the Spirit of God become like Him. So let's try to get our eyes on Christ, shall we? So this, this passage that I've just read to you, the one that was probably most familiar to you with, within this text, this verse, into verse 5 all the way down through verse 11, it's often called the Carmen Christi. It's the hymn of Christ. Some of your translations perhaps might have it written out in poetic form. You know how Bible translators will do that. Does yours have that, Miss Ellen? I see you nodding your head. Now, it will indent it over to make clear that this is, this is a poem or this is a, a hymn. You've you got to wonder at times, how did the first century church pass on these truths? You didn't just give your little baby boy a Bible at his dedication. You didn't have all these copies of scripture that you handed to people at their baptism. We, we think that this letter was probably written right around the year 60, right about the time that the earliest of the gospel records were being put down. And so you didn't have Paul's letters circulating. You didn't have the written gospels. What you had was the oral record of the apostles being passed on, being transmitted. And the Jewish people were incredibly good at putting to song or putting in hymn form or poetic form these, these statements of profound theological truth. Some of you are working through something like the New City Catechism or maybe the London Baptist Catechism, and you're, you're, you're catechizing, you're, you're training, you're, you're teaching your children to know incredible theological truth. And you're doing it in question and answer form, and maybe you're doing it in, in sing-songy form. They're learning to sing truth about God. And so what we say here, as I told you, is a way in which Paul the pastor is driving home an incredible point to this church and he brings this in. I don't know that he wrote this. I don't think that he did. It, it appears to me that probably this is a thing that everybody knew. And you know how pastors can do that, right? I could, I could burst into a line. You wouldn't enjoy it, but I could burst into a line of amazing grace. It would work in immediately. You would know that the, the truth that I'm seeking to impart from you from this. That's, pastors have been doing this from the very beginning, and he says, you all know this statement. You have all as followers of Christ, you've been trained to memorize this statement. And so I'll bring it in to show you the truest essence of humility. What it really means to look like Christ. And so that's what we have here. This is a thing that would have been broadly known. And it begins at the end of verse five with Christ Jesus, because he's the substance of it all. That's who we're talking about here. He's fixing to tell us something incredibly deep and true. And as I said, mind stretching about Christ. And it says at the beginning of our six, who, though he was 
It's going to tell us something about the being of Christ. Now, you'll recall from our first sermon in this Advent series, as we were back in the first chapter of John's gospel, that prologue to John's gospel, he was talking about the one who was in the beginning. And I told you that I believe there was intent in the form that he used there, making clear that when the beginning came, when the God of the universe spoke time and matter and space into existence, the word already was. And it seems to me as though he's telling us now something about who he was. And can I say what he was at the time of his incarnation? So we're talking here about his nature and his identity. Who, who was he before he came in the flesh? Well, he says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. There has been a lot of ink spilled and a lot of hearts broken, a lot of friendships severed, a lot of churches split. A lot of families divided over what what does this mean when he says here he was in the form with God? Does this mean that he was merely like God? That Christ Jesus, maybe he just looks like God. Well, if you look just down your page within that same verse, it seems to my mind as though he's drawing a parallel between those words in the form of God and equal with God. You see how he says that there equality with God. If you read from the NIV, it says being in the very nature God, but the word is rightly translated here as form. And so because of that, some people say, no, you you see, they don't focus so much on equality with God, but on the fact that it says they're grasped. Matter of fact, it says he didn't grasp. It says that Jesus did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. And so what they understand this to mean is That Christ Jesus, who was not God, as an act of incredible humility, did not try to snatch, did not try to reach for, did not try to capture for himself equality with God. That he wasn't God, and because he so loves God and is so obedient to God and so humble in his nature, he didn't try to usurp God's godness. And grasp it for himself. Is that what he means? Now again, if you go back to where we were two Sunday mornings ago in John's gospel, you recall that in the beginning he was with God and in the beginning he was God. But do John and Paul agree on this? They're talking about the same thing here. You see, we, we know that there is no contradiction in Scripture that... We must teach the full counsel. And so we can't just breeze by something and say, well, John has settled it. And so I don't know what Paul said. It doesn't really matter, does it? We've got to consider, no, what is he? What is he saying here? And I would ask you to first consider the context. Again, this is a sermon illustration by the apostle Paul to a church. And what did I tell you his goal was? What is his hope for the people? It's humility. That's the context of this whole thing is to show us the greatest humiliation, the greatest condescension, the greatest show of humility in the history of the universe. And so I ask you, would that really be humility for someone who is not God to not try to snatch Godness for himself? Is that the way you speak about humility? Now, we don't know how exactly Satan fell. We touched on it some last week, but we don't know fully what that rebellion in heaven 
look like? There's some hints in Scripture, depending on how you understand some of the prophetic passages. But it seems clear to me that what happened was a once holy angel and some angels that followed along with him, Satan and his demons, they stepped out of line. They tried to capture something for themselves, to make a name for themselves, to make themselves equal with or even higher than God. So I ask you, do you then look at the angel Gabriel? Do you then look at the elect angels? Do you look at those angels that did not join Satan in his rebellion? Do you look to them and say, wow, what a magnificent show of humility. Let me ask it to you another way. If I were to get in a plane and go to England. I travel to Buckingham Palace and I don't demand that they let me sleep in the king's bed while wearing the king's pajamas and wake up the next day to eat the king's breakfast. Do you look at me and say that Josh, he is really humble. But if that king were to wake up and say, I will remove my royal robes. I will go out amongst the common folks for their good and I will I will serve them. I will live alongside them. I will live as one of them. Is that not what you would look at and say, now that is humility? Seems to me that the context in and of itself tells us something about what Paul has in mind. But in addition to this, if you look at the one other place that that word is used there, that word form, it's morphe. It's used again for us in verse seven, where he says that Jesus took on the form of a servant. I want you to think about Jesus' servanthood. Was he merely outwardly looking like a servant or was he truly a servant? Did he live and give himself over to out of out of his nature, out of his out of his makeup? One that is a servant. Son of God came. Not to serve, excuse me, not to be served, but to serve. It seems to me very clear that what he's saying here is that this form, this morphe, it is the essence. It is the nature. It is the godness of God. And that is what Christ was from the very beginning, from all eternity past. Whatever it is that you think of when you think of God. You recall that back in John's prologue, he talked about that he was the one through whom all things were made and by whom all things were we're held together. And I asked you then, if we were to go through this room and ask just the children, just everyone under the age of 10, what do you know to be true about God? Well, in this church, there's a chance they'd say he's wrathful and hates sinners. <laughs> but probably something about him creating the world. What do you think of when you think of God? His omnipotence? His omniscience? His unending love and mercy and grace, his power and his wisdom and his righteousness and his justice and his holiness and his glory. That all of those things that make God God, all of God's godness. It's in this one called Christ Jesus. He was always has been always will be God equal with God in every way. Now, again, this is the second time we've, we've preached three sermons In this Advent series, and this is the second week when I've hammered down on this with great purpose and intentionality, making clear to you that this isn't a God light. This isn't a God like this isn't a junior God that this one that we look at lying in the manger. He is fully and completely God. 
Unless you think this is some minor thing, I would ask you to go back and learn something about church history. I've I've called you to read through some of these early creeds, and that made some of you very nervous because maybe you grew up in the Catholic Church and you were taught that the creeds belong to the Catholic Church. They don't. They belong to all of Christendom. They belong to the church. And these creeds, these these statements, most of them were focused on the, the person and the natures of Christ, Because you would come to the scripture and we thought that we were all on the same page. You understand? Whenever the early church would sing this hymn, we thought we believed the same thing. But then as we began to work this out and to teach it, the church started to look at each other and go, oh, whoa, wait. We parted ways somewhere. And so they would come back together and they would, they would wrestle with the scriptures and they would work together. And they would come to these concise statements about who Christ is. And one of the earliest threats to the church was by a man named Arius. Heard of Arianism that he believed that while Christ Jesus was the greatest of all creation and truly the one through whom God had created all things, that he was a creature. That there was a time when he was not. That we cannot say everything we say about God the Father with regards to this one who's called the Word. It was an incredible threat, but you see what happens is you come to Scripture and it stretches your mind beyond its limits and then we impose our own thought patterns and our own ideas and I like to think about God like. Many times I've warned you about this, not what we do in Sunday school. We don't sit around and talk about what you like to think about God. What does Scripture actually mean by what it actually says? And so thankfully a man named Athanasius rose up. We look back at these church heroes and we we can have these thoughts that they were all just kind and meek and mild and pastorly type men. The the kind of guy that you'd want to invite to your family Christmas. You would not have liked Athanasius. He was bold and he was brash and he went to battle over this thing. Athanasius contramundum was the statement that would go around. It means Athanasius versus the world. He said, I'll fight all of you to make clear who this one is. And what he said is, no, that Christ is not one who has been created. He is not one who is a lesser God. He is not any part of creation whatsoever. That he is fully and completely God. That's how we landed with this Nicene Creed. And it reads of Jesus like this. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. The only begotten son of God, begotten of the father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. And here's the key being of one substance with the father by whom all things were made. You see, they would make these statements, the church they would make these statements that he's very much like God. He's he's of almost the same substance as God. He's of similar substance to God. And he said no and no. Homoousius is the proper word. It's the difference between salvation and damnation. It's the difference between orthodoxy and heresy. That word gets thrown around a lot, you know? Heresy. But there are things that are real heresy, and that's what bothers me when that word is thrown around so easily. Somebody preaches a different understanding of Soteriology and the way that God works in bringing men to faith and repentance and eternal life. And somebody immediately wants to throw out the the attack, the the claim of, of heresy. Well, then heresy doesn't mean anything anymore. 
When you call everything heresy, then nothing is heresy. It is heresy, though, to say that Christ is anything other than the eternal, the infinite God of the same substance, of the same being, of the same essence. If I can say it, the same stuff as God. That's what it means to be in the form of God. God himself, that's who he was. What then does Paul mean when he says that he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped? If Paul meant what it seems clear that he meant, that he is God in himself, what then does he mean when he says that he didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped? Is he just saying, look, because he already had it, he didn't have to go snatch it? Well, that's certainly a true statement, right? I don't have to grasp for my Bible. It's already mine and here it stands. That's a true statement, but I don't think that's really saying much, is it? So it seems to me that there's something more here. When, when you use this word grasp, it can also mean to cling to something aggressively, to wrap your fingers around it, to close your fist upon it. it seems to me that what Paul is saying here is that he did not. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, truly, very, infinitely, eternally God, he did not yield his godness to his own advantage. That he refused to do anything that would hinder his obedience to the Father in coming in the flesh. That in love and service to the Father, he held it with an open hand. Making sure that he could come and he could live truly as a man. Truly as one of us, as the second man, as the last Adam, that he could come. That this one who had existed eternally in the form of God, who had known nothing but an eternity of worship in heaven. Rightful place at the very center of the angels' worship in heaven. That he would step down into time. That this one who had only ever existed face to face with the Father. Do you remember this? One who was always toward the Father and face to face with the Father and only knew an eternity of love with the Father, that he refused to cling to those great privileges so that he might come in obedience to the Father. He says that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, to be held on to. Again, I say, with an open hand, he held it, not wielding it for his own advantage, not demanding his own rights and prerogatives. But it says in verse 7, but he emptied himself. What does that mean? That word is kenosis. And so maybe you've not heard of this as the Carmen Christi. Maybe you've heard of this as the canonic hymn. Again, great levels of heresy that have come with this. As men have tried to wrestle with, what, what are we talking about? Of what did Christ empty himself? Well, I hate to use the word twice in one sermon. But the minute you start thinking in those terms of what did Christ lose? What did Christ empty himself of? You're teetering on the edge of heresy. Because some, what they will say as well, it was, it was, his, it was his deity, his, his divinity, his powers, his attributes, his nature. That what happened was God ceased to be God so that he could then come and be man. Again, these are human perceptions. This is every Disney movie, isn't it? That someone stops being who they are so that they could come be something else. And that's why I asked you at the beginning this why did God become man? Is that the right way to phrase this? Does God actually become anything? And I'll tell you the answer is no. 
God is not becoming. God is not shrinking back. God simply is. He is the essence of being. You see, we're always becoming something. You're always becoming older or fatter or smarter or stupider or something. We are always in a state of becoming, but he is not. He just is. To be God is to be. I told you this was going to stretch language. I'm, I'm, I'm at the end of my language here. It's going to stretch our minds, but God is never becoming anything. And by nature, God can't cease to be what he is. Because God's not made up of parts. Do you understand? You can't cut off God's arm. You can't remove his holiness or a bit of his holiness. Then he would cease to be the infinitely holy God of the universe. So you can't reduce any iota, any modicum, any, any, there's nothing there to reduce. All that he is, he is singularly, simply, forever. Scripture says this plainly, Malachi, I am the Lord and I change not. James says this, there's not even a variation or a, or a shifting of a shadow with God. God's immutable. I mean, there's no mutation or, or change or increase or decrease. That's who he is. God doesn't become anything he is. So to say that he would empty himself or to reduce himself or to lay aside any of his godness, as one commentator said, it would be divine suicide by the incarnation. Do you understand? All that God is, he has been and he must be for all eternity. And scripture proves this out in the life of Christ Jesus. Paul would say in Colossians 1.15 that he is the image of the invisible God. And Colossians 2.9 says that for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. Empty cannot equal full. Do you see? Reduced cannot equal fullness. The fullness of God, all that God is, all that makes God who he is, it remained in the word that became flesh. It remained in Christ Jesus as he came in the form of a servant. All that he was, he has always been. And continues to be. So if you're reading in the NIV, you'll find that instead of Instead of trying to, instead of doing a, a proper translation of this word emptying, kenosis, the NIV says it like this. Instead, he made himself nothing. The NIV says, or excuse me, the King James Version says that he made himself of no reputation. I, I think that these interpretations are good and, and right. Saying that There was something of his, his outward manifestation, his, his declaration of who he was. That this is the thing that we see in this emptying. And you'll hear people say, okay, very well then. Then the way that we need to talk about this is, and, and these are, I've heard men that I, that I respect and that I honor and that are ten times the theologians and the pastors and the preachers that I'll ever be. But I will hear them and I cringe a bit when I hear them say that what Christ emptied himself of then was his glory. But we've labored very hard around here to come. Words have meaning and words matter. And I think as best I can understand scripture and as clearly as I've tried to show you, God's glory is the sum of who he is. It's the weight of his beauty and his majesty. 
You could take everything that God is. Again, remembering he's not parts. He's not pieces. But if you could take the sum total, the, the weight and the worth and the value and the majesty. Again, I say the beauty of all that he is. And you could, you could point to that as one thing. You would say that is the glory of God. And again, this cannot be lost. That's why the author of Hebrews says that is, is the, the radiance of the glory of God. That glory is not a thing that he ever let loose of, even as it was veiled, but it cannot be diminished or, or even set aside. And I think we see pictures of this once we finally get to the shepherds in the field and we see the angels coming and you see the, the glory of the Lord shining about him. It's almost as though he... These are human, human terms and these don't work, but they work in my little pea brain. It's almost as if when the God of the universe pierced the veil and he, and he stepped into time and into creation, it's almost like some glory got sucked in with him. As we see him stepping upon that high mountain and he pulls back the veil to his flesh, he says, it's always been here. It never went anywhere. And in the text that David read earlier, he's saying, God, Father, glorify me with the glory that I've had for eternity. It's always been mine and it's still mine. But he's saying glorify. I think he's saying, let's go public with this thing. No longer shield it. No longer veil it. No longer conceal it. Let's make this thing known. I think that's a more proper understanding of what's happening here in this emptying. That's what we see on that night. He's saying, okay, Father, the time has come. Show this to the world. That was his desire for them in the upper room. It's a beautiful thing. If you hear the words that Christ is praying on behalf of his bride that he's purchased, and it makes me tear up when I think about this one who has come and he's about to lay down his life to purchase this bride, and she's ugly. But he's going to make her beautiful. He's going to clean, clean her up. He's going to cleanse her. He, he, he loves her and he's laying down his life on her behalf. But he says, Father, I'm coming to you and I'm worried for her. My grandfather, as, as did probably many of your grandfathers, fought in World War II. And my parents have some of the letters that he wrote back home to his parents saying, watch out for Juanita. There's one particular time when Christmas was coming and he knew that he wasn't going to be able to get a gift back to her. And so he writes a letter to his parents and says, would you buy her something nice? And I'm going to see a correlation there. Christ is fixing the head to heaven. He looks at his father and he says, I love her. And I bought her. And I want you to give her the thing that she needs. And what does he say? Don't allow her to fall away. And God, I want them to be with me that they can see my glory. That's how they will be held fast. That's how they will endure. That's how the world won't overtake them. That's how they, have, they will have unity as one. That's how they will be a part of us and, and know this love that we've had before the beginning. Just let them see my glory. But for a season, it was, it was shielded. It was veiled. And again, I say he didn't, he didn't use it to his own advantage. He didn't yield it to minimize one ounce of the humiliation and the suffering that he undertook as the God man. That he was going to live just as a human should. In dependence upon the father, 
in obedience to the Father and independence upon the Spirit. That's why he says things like, I only do that which I see my Father do. Or whenever they... Whenever the religious leaders claim and accuse Jesus of doing things by the hand of Beelzebub, he says, you, you know that the kingdom of God has come because I cast out demons by the spirit of God. It's by the work of the spirit and the power of the spirit, and the enabling of the spirit. That's the way I do these things. That it wasn't a game. When it says he came in the form of a servant in the likeness of a man, he didn't just pretend to be a man. It's not like when you're wrestling with your children and you let them pretend to pin you for a minute. He lived as a man in every way as a man and refusing then as a man to independently exercise his divine attributes. And he was going to live in dependence upon the Holy Spirit and obedience to the Father. That what we see here is not a superman. Do you understand? I heard a guy this week says that if he's a superman, that he's not the saving man. It had to be a man. Just like us in every way, save and accept sin, he had to be human. And that's why we see so much of what we see in his life as he, he learns. The eternal word had to learn how to speak. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to lace up his sandals. He had to grow physically. He grew tired and sick and was capable of dying. Scripture says that God cannot be tempted by evil, but this one was led out into the wilderness. And there in his humanity, he was tempted in every way. That all of this was necessary. This is why God became man. So that he could do all that Adam failed to do. He could resist every last temptation. That he could fulfill all righteousness. So what we see here is the Son of God letting go of the accolades of heaven to take a place inside the dark womb of a young girl. Refusing to grasp all his own his advantages, his, his, his deity, to, to yield it to his own advantage and instead living in dependence upon a teenage virgin. Do you see now why this is humility? The ultimate picture of humility? But I tell you, the way that you need to be thinking, therefore, about this emptying, it's not emptying by subtraction. It's emptying by addition. One guy wondered if we ought to think about this as not what he had emptied himself of, but what he emptied himself into. How did he empty himself? By laying aside his divinity? Never. By losing any part of his nature and essence as God? Never. He did it, it says explicitly, by taking the form of a servant. Just as he is in the essence and the nature and every last attribute of God, he came as a real servant. When I was considering what text... To have David read before we came, I considered the first chapter of first Peter where, where it talks. I think it's the first chapter. It is first Peter where, where he, he talks about the, the, the prophets had been inquiring into this thing. Because you see these you see these shadowy pictures in the Old Testament. Just go back 
to what we saw in Genesis 3.15. He's got the power and the authority and the right and the ability to crush the head of the servant. Must be God. But he's got a heel that can be bruised. Must be man. Go to Isaiah, you see that he is the Lord of the universe. But he's a suffering servant. Right there in Isaiah chapter 9, I think that's our Advent reading for Christmas Eve. Yeah, where we we talk about this, this child that is born and he's the mighty God and the everlasting Father. We don't have space in our brains for this unless God says, you've just got to submit. The Bible says it, so I'm going to have to believe it, but I can't make any sense of it. The answer is the God-man. That's who he is. Fully God, fully man. Not watered-down divinity, not hyped-up humanity. A man just like you or like me. Righteous and holy And powerful enough to destroy the works of the devil. Worthy enough to satisfy his father's wrath. And yet fully able to represent us as our federal head. Doing all that Adam should have done on our behalf. Fulfilling all righteousness and standing in as our proper substitute. It doesn't just say that he's. A human, as great a condescension as that would be. And you feel the weight of that even now. What a condescension. Come from the glories of heaven to live as a man. What do we long for when we think about the spiritual body that is promised to us in eternity? When we think about the resurrection, think about some of the terms that are used. Weakness, no longer weak, but powerful. Dishonorable. How many dishonorable things are there to this nature? But instead, glorious. Not weak, not fading, not frail, not fragile, glorious and unfading and powerful. So think about the reverse of that, the the stepping down from the eternities of eternal glory of heaven, stepping down and taking upon himself humanity and not demanding to make yourself a king or a rich man, but a servant. I can see I've got to move very swiftly because I want to get you to the joy that was set before him. But we see him serving. He says, I didn't come to be served. I always get this backwards for some reason. But I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And I think that you see an incredible parallel between this canonic hymn, the the Carmen Christi. We see an incredible parallel between this and the scene in John 13 as he gets up from his rightful place at the table. And what does he do? He takes his clothes off, puts upon himself the servant's apron, And then he serves these men washing their dirty feet. Knowing that the time had come and all things had been given to him. Knowing exactly who he was and where he was headed. See, this true picture of servants, humility. I have confession time. I came in this morning and Andrew asked me for some help. A document and we couldn't get the thing opened or something. And Andrew looked at me at one point. You probably don't remember that you said this, but it. Struck me like a knife, thanks. Andrew looked at me and said, you got more important things to be doing. Well, having just 
spent something like 50 hours studying this, I just got on the floor and started washing Andrew's feet. Don't you have better things to be doing? You're the Lord of glory. You've come to save us from our sins and you're sitting here washing our feet and Yeah, even Judas, he who was rich beyond all measure for our sake became poor. That's what you're witnessing. He didn't just serve his brothers. Of course, of course, ultimately, he was serving his father, upholding his father's righteousness and glory and name that the serpent sought to destroy there in the garden. And it says, verse eight, that he was found in human form. Now, this is a different word for form. It's schema. And I, I think it speaks more to the outward appearance of who Christ was. He looked like a man, despite what some of the medieval paintings might make you believe. He did not have a halo. He, he didn't he, he didn't glow everywhere that he walked. If you would have been there, he would just look like a normal baby boy. So much so that, you know, that his brothers, they didn't. How do, how do you live with Christ as your brother and never know? Until the resurrection, they didn't they didn't believe. Even as he said, even as these miracles and things were being done, they, they doubted in their own heart. And Isaiah 53 tells us that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Speaking, of course, yes, to the taking of sin upon himself and, and, and the becoming a curse for our sake. But I think there's two points that there's just there was no outward manifestation of anything that would cause you to believe this is anything other than a man. And you begin to realize what was in that man. All that was there. I've got a lot of favorite scenes from Chronicles of Narnia. And um, C.S. Lewis and I do not agree on all things theological, but man. And there's a scene. I, I don't. There's, there's a scene in the, in the book called The Last Battle. It's the it's the. That's the last one. And there's a scene where King Tyrion and his and his and his people are they're they're fleeing and they're running and they go up onto I don't remember a hill or a mountain, but it says that there's a stable there and they go they go into this stable and as they go into this stable, I've written it down here, they go into the stable and they realize there's a whole world, just like there's a whole world in the wardrobe, there's a whole world in the stable. And it, it says this. Tyrion, looking around again, he could hardly believe his eyes. There was blue sky overhead and grassy country spreading as far as he could see in every direction. And his new friends all around him were laughing. It seems then, said Tyrion, smiling to himself, that the stable scene from within and the stable scene from without are two different places. Yes, said Lord Diggory, inside it is bigger than its outside. Yes, said Queen Lucy, in our world too, a stable once held something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. I love those because I love babies and I get excited when babies are coming. The, 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 like when they say what a fruit, what size of fruit the baby is. Right, it starts out something tiny you can't see and then it becomes a... I don't know what the next one is, a pea or something. And then, and then it grows and inside that little... Something bigger than the whole world. How could it be? 
So he humbled himself by becoming obedient. That was his purpose to fulfill all righteousness where Adam failed. Adam was disobedient. Adam joined in the rebellion. He was going to be obedient at every single point. And I still wonder, how did his brothers not notice this kid never does anything wrong? Now, again, he would look just like a human. What, what is a way in the manger? No crying he makes. I don't remember how that whole line goes. That's a lie. He cried. He was a baby and babies cry unless they're fed and dry and, and asleep. But it was never a sinful cry. It was never a rebellious cry. How did they not notice this? I, I don't I don't get it. But absolute perfect obedience. But not just would he be obedient, obedient to the point of death. And that was the nadir of it all. That was the low point. That 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 was it. Right. We see this dissension. He, he leaves the glory of heaven to become a man. What condescension, not just a man, but a servant who could think it not just a servant, but obedient unto death. You see the downward step because death is the wages of sin. And this one, he had no sin. He was perfectly obedient. But we see here both the passive and the active obedience of Christ, of course, active in, in all of this. It was he that laid down his life on the cross. No one took it from him. He laid it down himself. But that's the way we speak of these things, that he fulfilled all the positive demands of the law and then took upon himself the full penalty. It says that he took upon himself death, even death on a cross. Now, in common and proper society, that was a vulgarity to speak of the crucifixion or the cross. I tried to think of things in modern day in this part of the world. And I realized, what's the point of trying to think of one? You wouldn't want to say it. It's a vulgarity. It's an obscenity. How, what would you think of me? If I just started blurting out and speaking about things that you don't talk about in polite com- company. This is the death on a cross. It's a death deserved for the Jewish people for a cursed man. Not just his, the physical torment that came with this, but the wrath of his father. Yes, for us, for us, but ultimately for his own glory, to glorify and uphold the righteousness that he would be both just and the justifier of sinners. This was the only way. That's the whole point to Anselm's book. There, there wasn't another option. If there was another option, God would have done it. He didn't have to save any of mankind, but once he had determined that man would fall and he would save humanity, this was the only option and it was vulgar. It was obscene. It was unheard of. That's why it's so ridiculous when people would say, well, this is just a religion that's made up by man. Who makes up a thing where their God and their Lord and their Savior dies as a curse? And yet... As Christ knew going into the cross, he said, for this reason, my father loves me. Now, the father always loved him again, face to face for all eternity. He loved him. But now something peculiar and spectacular and unheard of. As the God man, the word who had become flesh, he did this. And that's that word. Therefore, there is no. One of my preaching heroes is John Piper because he, he, he picks apart the therefores and the buts and the connecting words. I'm telling you, this therefore is huge. Not just for Christ, but for us. Therefore, for this reason, everything shifts, shifts here. Oh, man. 
Yeah, we're going to do, we're going to do this. But it, it's, he, has, he has reached the low point. He has come to the bottom and now it's nothing but up. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. Hooper exalted him, exalted him to the highest, to the greatest glory to God in the highest. That's what he's talking about here. He has exalted him to the highest level, but there's no higher level that he just descended from. Is there? He's the son of God. He's the word. He's fully God. He's essentially God. He is God in his being and is his essence. He was exalted in the highest. The angels in Isaiah 6 were worshiping him. They couldn't look at him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. But beloved, you've got to see this. Now it's the God man. This thing that had never yet been. Do you see how he down and down and down he stepped so that he could take you up with him? Humanity now at the right hand of the Father. It would be blasphemy if the scripture didn't demand that I say it. Do you see this? There is no higher exaltation than the highest heights of heaven. And he left there to come down to take upon himself something that he would never then lose. He didn't shed his humanity when he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He went and took it with him. That today, the one who reigns is the God-man. Explicitly because he came in this humility. In obedience to the Father. So he's saying that he's exalted him. No longer is glory hidden, but high and lifted up. That was the end. That was the joy that was set before him. Christians, we can have this unholy and unhealthy and unbiblical picture that we're supposed to walk around like a bunch of martyrs and sad sacks. We're just serving and serving and serving and getting nothing back. I'm telling you to shed yourself of those thoughts. You want to be like Christ? Then you endure suffering for the joy set before you, for exaltation and for glory. How's that for a prosperity gospel? That the path of all this world is meant to be humility leading to exaltation, suffering leading to glory. That it was, he wasn't a sad dog walking around saying, I'll do this, but I know there's nothing in it for me. That's not the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is I want the greater. I want the more. I won't settle for the, for the passing For the momentary, for the dung, give me the good stuff. And the good stuff is in heaven right now. Being stored up and guarded for me. And the path to that is suffering and humility and suffering and keeping my eyes on Christ Jesus, the one in whom I'm hidden even now. So we see him then vindicated and exalted and lifted up and affirmation. He is who he says he is. It says that he's bestowed upon him a name that's above every other name. What's the name? What's the name? It's not Jesus. He was always Jesus. Yes. Jesus is just a, a transliteration of the name Joshua. How's that? Would anybody say, oh, Joshua, that's the name. He doesn't say a name above every other name. The name above every other name. Joshua? There's lots of Jesuses to this day. Jesuses. 
What is the name that was given to him? The name that is above every other name is Jesus is Lord. But he was already Lord. Are you starting to get it? He was the Lord of glory. Lord. Now, Lord can be used in all kinds of ways. This, this word kurios, it could be used to just mean sir, just like a polite way to speak to somebody. It can be used of someone that's an that's a, that's a, uh, authoritative person or a, uh, or a master of some sort. But when it's used like this, there's no doubt who he's talking about. It's Yahweh. That Yahweh. The one who will share his glory with no other. I am God and there is no other. You know how I know this for sure? Because of what he says, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That this is what it means. He's quoting Isaiah 45. I've told you before my love of that section in Isaiah there in the 40s where God is just talking smack to all these idolaters and all these idols. And he's saying, I'm God and you're not. No Jewish man would ever think to call anyone else Lord, Yahweh. That's where these men were martyred. It was, the, the Romans, they were okay with you calling Jesus Lord, but you must also say that Kaiser is Lord. So we can't do this. We would not dream of calling anyone else Yahweh and Lord. In Isaiah 45, verse 22, it says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and I am Savior and there's no other. There's no other. There's no other. God is one, isn't he? By myself, I have sworn from my mouth goes out in righteousness, a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance or every tongue confess. And now Paul's saying, and there he goes. There is but one Yahweh and that one Yahweh is three. And the second member has come and taken upon himself the fullness of humanity. He has stepped down to the very depths of death upon a cursed cross. And because he has done this, he has now taken with himself the fullness of humanity to reign at the right hand of the Father. You're not impressed enough, but you will be. If you would truly give yourself over to meditating on this and praying about this and feeling the weight of this. That the one who sits upon a cross, can I say it? He's one of us. Hebrews 2 says he's not ashamed to call us brother. He's able to go to the father and say, I know exactly what they feel and what they have experienced. I have bought them with my own blood. I stand here as the intercessor and the mediator. Who is he? He's the man, Jesus Christ. Do you see the preciousness that the, the, the love and, and concern that God has then for us? That he would go to such great lengths. He didn't need us, you, you'd realize. But now there's this exaltation upon the God man and us hidden there with him in the promise of glory and exaltation for us all as well. And of course, it's saying that the purpose in all this, the purpose in all of this, is the glory of God. 
that in the end, when the last enemy has been placed under his feet and the fullness of all things is brought into him, he turns around and hands it back to the Father. That's the story of Christmas. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. It is my prayer, Father, that we as a people would never, ever, ever see Christmas the same way again. That we would feel the weight and the majesty and the the scandal of it all. We praise you that this is much more than just a story about God coming to look like a cute little baby. But the king of glory taking upon himself flesh. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to meditate on, to digest, to live in light of all that we have just seen in your word. And to come back to this place next week with preparation now to truly see what you did 2000 years ago in that place. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen.